I'm going to begin today a new sermon series, um, and it's entitled Spiritual Warfare, What We Need to Know. It will go on for eight weeks. I suggest if you missed last week, even though it's not part of this session, that you listen to it because I spoke about Satan. And what you have to understand is that Satan is in charge of spiritual warfare. The demons throughout the world serving Satan are serving him for the purpose of taking you away from Jesus. Not that you're going to go to hell, you're already saved, but taking you away from serving God, from loving God, from being everything that you could be as you walk with God. And so we're going to really focus on this and prepare you for what we all have to face. Now, we believe, and the Bible is very clear about this, that we as, in, as Christians are involved in an everyday, ongoing spiritual warfare. We've seen the role of Satan in our lives, which we talked about last week. Uh, we now have to see how he tries to derail Christ in his mission to bring us to salvation and to bring the world to salvation. Uh, and it is no different with us in terms of this battle. The stakes are incredibly high. You see, our future and everything that rides on it depends on your understanding of spiritual warfare and how we fare in this ongoing battle. Now, Scripture is clear in these last days here on earth. We are to shake off our lethargy and put away all forms of darkness. We're going to put away everything that would take us away from Christ and instead embrace those things that will bring us closer to Jesus uh, as we engage in this ongoing good fight of faith. Uh, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual wickedness in high places. Let me repeat that. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual wickedness in high places. So many of us look at other people that may tempt us and we think these issues are involved with other human beings. They're not. Satan uses other people. He uses them. But we're not fighting against flesh and blood. We're fighting against spiritual wickedness in the very highest place. Look at Ephesians 6, verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. In the heavenly realms, meaning what? Not in the celestial realms where God and Christ are located, where heaven isn't located, but below that, the, the heavenly realms, meaning everything outside of the planet Earth, the atmosphere, that's where they rule, you see. And so our struggle is a spiritual struggle. Uh, and the devil's purpose is to get a stranglehold on you and, and to neutralize you spiritually and to take your testimony away from Jesus Christ. That's his plan. Now, as Paul sees it in his worldview, and it's our worldview, the biblical worldview, we are in a spiritual battle with evil in which there is no truce, no quarter, no peace. It goes on every single day. As he makes these arguments uh, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the power of darkness, he makes essentially three fundamental points. First, the struggle is supernatural, meaning it's much more 
than flesh and blood. It's supernatural. That's what you're facing. Second, the struggle is personal. Each and every one of you will go through this personal struggle. It's not something that somebody else will face and you won't face. Every one of you will face it, and it will be a hand-to-hand fight. That's what this is going to be like. Third, the struggle is futile if fought in and by our own flesh. That's critical. If you think that you can make this struggle and surpass what you're going to face in your own flesh, you are doomed to fail. You cannot succeed uh, in your own fate because we are making a very different fight from fighting other humans. Our enemies, you see, are so powerful that no human power can withstand them. Uh, We only prevail through the impact of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, and you need to understand that. Now, awareness that we are involved uh, in a cosmic battle, which is supernatural and personal and futile if fought with natural weapons, is the beginning of conquering wisdom and coming to understand what spiritual warfare is about. We must be convinced of these things if we are to succeed. We must go beyond evangelical lip service. Uh, And you understand what I say when I say evangelical lip service, repeating spiritual platitudes, but instead come to a deep-sounded conviction which bursts our simplistic religious shackles. We are involved in warfare. Make no mistake about it. Every single one of you. Now, the fact that these powers inhabit uh, the heavenly realms indicate that they have the run of what we call the celestial sphere. They do not have the run of the highest heaven where Christ and God exist, but instead right underneath it that they have this charge. And there are millions upon millions of demonic forces. And I want you to know that they inhabit the sources and kingdoms of power in every single country in the world. Make no mistake, they're in Congress. No, make no mistake, they're in the White House. Make no mistake, they're in the Senate. They're in Rome. They're in uh, Paris. They're in London. They're in Israel. And they are in church. You understand this? You understand why churches can collapse and fail? What do you think? You think it's an accident? No, that's the spiritual warfare of Satan, and you need to understand it. Uh, And that's why God wants us to be aware of this. Now, the designation, you see, of these angels, these demonic angels, as rulers, authorities, powers, and spiritual forces indicates that they form a vast, organized hierarchy. How do you think Satan can oversee this hierarchy uh, when, when he is not omnipresent. He's not God, but he has organized this demonic hierarchy that it surrounds the globe, uh, and they report back to him, and they plan with him. Some theologians believe, and I do also, that these high-ranking powers included the angel princess of Persia and Greece, who hindered the archangel Gabriel uh, in his message to Daniel. And you know that Daniel prayed for three weeks, 
three weeks that God would speak to him about the history of the Jewish people. There he is in captivity in Babylon, wondering, what's the future, God? What is the future of God's people? What do you have planned? And for three weeks, day and night, he prayed, and there's no answer. But I want to refer you to Daniel chapter 10, as you see what went on here, uh, as Satan hindered Gabriel from delivering the message. Uh, When the angel finally got to Daniel, and that's Gabriel, he explained, do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, the archangel, one of the chief angels came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Evil is not to be trivialized. Can you imagine the the demonic power that would actually lock up an angel for three weeks? But it occurred, and it exists, and it exists even today. The immediate implication for us is that Satan is terribly powerful. Uh, To be sure, he does not possess anything near the power of God, because God is not created, he is infinite. But in God's inscrutable arrangement that we really do not understand, he temporarily allows Satan to dominate and drive this world. Uh, Though the devil can only be in one place at one time, with his myriad malignant spirits that scan the globe in every place of authority, he imitates, you see, God's omnipresence, uh, for he desires to be God more than anything else. That's what caused his fall. Uh, His forces are strategically located uh, in the world's culture, in every aspect of the culture, both secular and ecclesiastical. His lieutenants are well-schooled and well-placed to spread the malignancy The consensus of Scripture is that the world is dominated by this evil. Uh, And this is important to understand, and I want you to understand it. It's not just in government. It's not just in the arts. It's not just in culture. It's even in church. When you see churches collapse, why do you think they collapse? When there's good people there, because it's good people that allow themselves to be tempted and used by satanic forces. And you see all types of false theology coming into church. And you see it. You see it in these last days. You've all had experience with this. When you see this woke theology, that's not in the Bible. That's not in the Bible, but you see it permeate church and become part of the leadership of church. And then you see the churches fall. This is exactly what Satan wants to see. Look at 1 John uh, chapter 5, uh, verse 19, and here, here the apostle says, We know that we are the children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Paul writes further uh, in Corinthians 4, verse 4, that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Do you understand what goes on? He blinds 
the ungodly. He comes in, and even people who are godly, uh, suddenly they fall off course because of this. And this is what happens when you lose the cross. This is what happens that you don't embrace Jesus and walk closer to him. Uh, why else could, Christ, could Satan take Jesus up to one of the highest mountains in the world and look at the world and say, all this, all this I will give you if you will just bow down and worship me. Because he could make that, you understand? He had the authority to make that. Uh, and so we understand that he has power. We understand that he is cunning. Uh, in, uh, in the portion that we read in Ephesians talks about the schemes of the devil, the very schemes and cunning of the devil. He has been honing his practice and methodology for millennia. Uh, his emissaries, his emissaries even visited the powerful church councils at Nicaea uh, and Chalcedon. They were there trying to influence what was happening in the very council of the godly. He is an accomplished philosopher, uh, theologian, and psychologist. He has had thousands of years to study. That is your enemy, and that is why you cannot face it in your own flesh. One of the deadly methods we know uh, that Satan has is masquerading as an agent of God. Paul records this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14. <clears throat> and you understand how godly people in church councils can fall for this. He masquerades as an agent of light. And there we read, quote, And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising, then, if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end be will be what their actions deserve. He specializes, you see, in mixing enough truth with falsehood to make it seem even plausible. That's what he does. He did this with Eve in the Garden of Eden uh, as, he, as he challenged her as to what she thought God wanted. He took something that seemed plausible then put something false and caused her to repudiate God. He slanders God, even when you're not aware of it being slanderous. Uh, and today, I believe, his most common way uh, of tempting us is through sensuality. That's what the current culture is all about, sensuality, our senses. How do we feel? What do we deserve? Me, me, I, I. He knows that. And so he will deal and appeal with you on that very issue. How many of us have slidden because we've accommodated him in that regard? Oh, God, give us strength not to do this. Please, Lord, give us strength. Now, one of the devil's most effective methods uh, is to instill doubts about God's goodness. Oh, he's not really that good. He doesn't really care about me. This was his great attack on Martin Luther. This is what Martin Luther had to come to understand. He struggled with his loss of faith because he believed that God was not as good to him as he should have been. And he struggled with that. Here is this great religious leader. And so seldom does Satan attack openly. 
He's not going to attack you openly. He's not going to come to you and say, well, you should commit this crime. Why don't you do it and, and do this act of assault? He's not going to do that. My dad used to say that with people in church, Satan has white-gloved demons. You understand white-gloved demons? Sophisticates, lovely, appealing, gossip, slander. The attack on the brethren, but so, so slickly done that you don't understand it and come to appreciate it. And yet you start sliding down this slope. The white-gloved demons, uh, always shrewd and always attuned to his victims, perfectly tailored to what we will fall for. Our enemy is subtle and he's powerful. And he hates Jesus Christ. And he hates the children of God. That is why one of the names that the Bible gives him is the accuser of the brethren. The accuser of the brethren. How about that? He comes into church. He puts his nose under the tent. And all of a sudden, what do you see? He starts accusing somebody in church or gets you to start accusing somebody in church because he understands that's how you divide a church. That's what happens. He understands this. He hates the church, and he will do anything that he can to destroy it. And he's been successful in destroying churches. These are the chilling realities uh, that Paul communicated with this letter to the Ephesians. And let me accommodate Paul and lift him up. Here he is chained to a Roman centurion, and he's writing these letters to the Ephesian church. Oh, God, thank you for this man. Thank you for this godly man. On earth, among mortals, there is no equal to Satan. None. But, but in the heavenly realms, he is far exceeded by Jesus Christ, by the triune God. Because he is a created being. He cannot fight against God. He is finite while God is infinite. And because Satan is a created being, uh, he is infinitely inferior to God. His power is overwhelmed by God. An example of this, a perfect example of this in the Bible is found in Exodus chapter 7, verse 6 to 12. <clears throat> and this, in this passage, uh, Jesus, uh, God has told Moses that when he goes to see Pharaoh, he should throw his staff down to demonstrate the authority and power of God. Read with me as you put it on the board. Exodus 7, verse 6. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. Now, all of you remember the movie, which I'll never forget, that scene. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same thing by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a stake. Do you think Satan has power? Do you think the evil side has power? Here they were throwing their staffs down, and they turned into snakes. But God, 
but God is more powerful. Uh, Aaron's staff swallowed up their snakes. How about that? God shows who wins in the end. And we've read the last page of the Bible. We win. All right? Make no mistake. Clearly, the power of God is far superior to the power of Satan. But we have to embrace the power of God. We have to walk with God. We have to attach ourselves to the body of Christ. But there's even more as you consider this fight. Christ is not only more powerful by virtue of the fact that he is the creator, he is also more powerful because he defeated Satan at the cross. And as a result, Satan and his demonic flock are under the feet of Christ. That was a titanic battle. At the cross, Satan launched everything that he had to make Jesus give up. He didn't want him to go to the cross. It was the last step. He would do everything in his power to keep that from happening. And yet Christ went in a victory march to the cross. Uh, uh, Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, that Jesus has led us in a victory parade as he disarmed the demonic forces. We have it on the board. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them on the cross. A public spectacle. This is who you are, Satan, under our feet. They were defeated at the cross and are now under Christ's feet and under your feet as long as you embrace Jesus Christ and walk with him every day of your life. And so as the invisible world uh, attacks us, when we defend ourselves through Jesus and the Holy Spirit, we reign with Jesus Christ. If we are filled with the Spirit, Satan's forces cannot subdue us. This is why you need to be saved. This is why your family needs to be saved. This is why your friends need to be saved. Unless you are filled with the Holy Spirit that comes about by salvation, you are doomed to defeat. And this, has become, this becomes a critical part of this message. Now, another example of the spiritual warfare uh, that's so sly and cunning and sophisticated took place when Jesus told his disciples that he was going to have to go to Jerusalem and suffer at the hands of the religious leaders and ultimately die in order to fulfill prophecy. Uh, although he indicated he would die, he also indicated he would be resurrected on the third day. But this, you see, was not good enough for Peter. And this is how good people get uh, susceptible uh, to evil. Here's Peter, one of the greatest apostles, one of those people upon whom the New Testament will be written, someone who will give his life for Christ, yet you see, subject to the whims of Satan. And how did, this is example, one of those white glove demons, you understand? Oh, Peter, don't let Jesus go to the cross. He's too young. Look at what he could do. He could serve so many years, not the cross. Don't do that. And so he took Jesus aside and he rebuked him. How's that for nerve? Matthew 16, 23. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. It's as if Satan took his lips 
and delivered the message he wanted through this misguided man. Jesus understood immediately, you see, that this was the work of Satan uh, designed to keep him from fulfilling uh, the role that God had given him. Jesus replied, and I love this, and this is something, put it on your refrigerator. Matthew 16, 23, get behind me, Satan. And in one of those uh, comedic features that I saw, they said, and don't push. (laughs) Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, he says this to Peter. One of his cherished disciples, what is the lesson for you? There will come times in your life that even loved ones, perhaps family members, will say things to you that are not in the will of God. Oh, do you have to go to church today? Really? Do you have to go and be on that committee? You have to sing in the choir, come out Thursday nights. Look, we can't go out to dinner. Uh, and you're being denied the things that you worked so hard for in your life. You understand. Wouldn't it be better if you got some rest? Roll over. Look, it's going to rain today. You don't want to go out in the rain. Oh, stay in bed. You'll do much better if you get more rest. God knows your heart. Yeah, God knows your heart. And he sees that you're staying home and not going to worship with the other Christians. This is what Satan does. And look what God says. Get behind me, Satan. You repudiate him just as you repudiate your loved ones who will say things like this today. Look, our spiritual battle is with the unseen realm. Even good people will succumb to this. Uh, and, and it is a call to arms that Paul has given us. Uh, and interestingly, by way of understanding this, uh, in Ephesians, he's chained to a Roman centurion. Clearly, the imagery of a, a Roman centurion is playing heavily into his, his depiction of a soldier that we're told about. And you see, this is how God allows us to be in circumstances that will allow us to be used. I believe God allowed him to be chained to that soldier because God wanted him to write about the imagery of the kind of battle that we face and about the armor that we need to use. Look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 to 18, and we will focus on this much in the coming weeks. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For the struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and stand firm. As you take all the elements that God has given you, the very armor that God has given you, uh, the full armor, 
the, the truth of God, the righteousness of God, the gospel of peace, uh, the shield of faith as you surround yourself with everything that God has given you and you commit yourself with all of that. You take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of, of the spirit, which is the word of God. And then what? He says in verse 18, and then pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. People will ask me, how many times a day do you pray? Do you have a little prayer room? Do you have a prayer shawl? Uh, Do you pray at night? Do you pray in the morning? I would say this, that if I had a number, the the number of times I pray today to God, I'd probably say it's in excess of 50 times. Meaning what? Every moment and hour of the day I'm praying to God. I'm asking him to protect me, to lead me, to protect this church, to deliver the kind of messages that he wants. You have to be in a state of prayer. If you don't ask God, you don't communicate of God, you become a lone ranger. You understand? And that's what Satan wants. Go out on your own. You don't need to pray. You're smart. You're well-educated. Look at you. Look at your intelligence. You can decide. No, you can't. No, you can't. Your puny, carnal mind is doomed to fail. You need to pray constantly to God. I knew a, a dear woman who said she even prayed for parking spots. All right? All right. I, maybe I don't go that far, but I'm constantly praying to God to protect me. I don't get into a car. I don't get into a car in Naples without praying. That's just smart. That's just smart. And that's what God wants. He wants you to be linked to him in every possible way. And even as I'm preaching to you now, I hope you're praying and saying, God, open my heart. Lord, teach me what you have. Let this message resonate with me because this is what he wants. And so when we avail ourselves of Jesus Christ... There is always victory. You will not fail. You will not fall. And so even though there's vast powers that we face, these rulers of the spiritual realms, it is Christ's transcending and transforming power that protects us. And so what do we need to do as we bring this message to a close? He leaves two commands for us that I think are, are dominate this advice. First, be strong in the Lord and in his power. Be strong in the Lord. Commit yourself to the Lord. Make sure your friends and family know that you walk with Jesus Christ as you pray with him and have him dominate your life in every way in his power. We cannot fight Satan by ourselves. It cannot happen. All you will do will be to fail in vain. Nevertheless, there's something that you can do. And that is to avail yourself of the Lord Jesus Christ's strength. Paul says elsewhere that the Lord said to him, My grace, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so we acknowledge our weakness. Lord Jesus, I can't do it. Before I get up and preach, the minutes before I'm sitting here and I'm going, God, I can't do this. 
I can't get out and deliver the message that you have to these people. I don't know your will, but I bow, Lord, and I say, touch me, lift me, affirm me. Let my lips say your word. Let me give them what you want them to hear. And that's what God does. Because as you bow in your weakness, his grace is sufficient. He will deliver you. And I want to say to you that when you leave here today, I want you to have that confirmation in your life that as you walk with Christ, that you will successfully navigate the bows and arrows, the slings that will come against you. You will survive them. You will walk in strength because Jesus Christ will walk with you. Amen, church. Let's bow our head. Lord, I thank you for this message. I thank you for a further understanding of spiritual warfare. Lord, let this message resonate in our heart. Let us understand what we face. Let us come closer to you, Jesus, and embrace you in every way because we know only through embracing you and holding on to you that we can succeed. Bless this church. Let them understand how they can have victory as we put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.